All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. How are we doing? <laughs> How are we doing? Good. There we go. There we go. Well, hey, uh, if, uh, if you don't know me, Life Point family, welcome back. And if you don't know me, my name's Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here at the Delaware campus. Guests, we always say this to you when you're first time here. Uh, I want to point you toward a resource, lpguest.com. So there on the chairs in front of you, there's some QR codes. You're welcome to pull out your smartphone and use that QR code. Uh, if it doesn't work, you can just go to lpguest.com. Open up a browser, type in lpguest.com. Uh, the message notes, probably the most important thing, the message notes will be there for this morning. So all the scripture passages, if you're new and uh, maybe you didn't, don't have a Bible with you, you, you can find them there at lpguest.com. They'll also be on the screens for you, but the notes and the passages for this morning are there. If you have the LifePoint Ohio app, all that's already there under the notes uh, section. Uh, and also, there's a guest information card here. Guests, if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to fill that out sometime during our time together, we'd love to be able to connect with you and get some of your feedback as well. Uh, also, so Trunktober, we've been talking about this for weeks. I think we ended up at 39 uh, trunks signed up, so grateful for that. Uh, the rain is supposed to stop in like an hour, and then not come back until later this evening. So the Lord seems to have given us a window of time here. So right now we are still planning on outside tonight. Just pray that it stays that way. I hope you'll come. Hope you'll invite others. It's supposed to be 56 degrees and cloudy, which is about as good as you can hope for in October, right? Late October, uh, Ohio. So hopefully you'll be there with us tonight as we have a ton of fun. There'll be candy. There'll be food there as well. Bounce houses for the kids. So we're going to have a great time this evening. I hope you'll come and invite someone to come with you. And then also... These bags are out at, you'll see there are two tables out by our uh, missions wall where the global map is. There's also a table, I think, in the LPK hallway with these grocery bags. Let me explain this. So in the series we're going to start today, we're going to be talking about through this series a lot, our relationship with the city in which we live, uh, the community in which we live. How do we live faithfully as followers of Jesus and, and serve well our, our city? And so uh, recently, one of our Serve the City partners, the Stowe Mission Center of Ohio, reached out to us. Our Lewis Center campus leads more in that relationship. Uh, but they said, hey, we're basically out of food items. We are really low in our stock. And so we said, well, let's do something about it to help. And so all of our campuses reached out to their local partners. So we reached out to the Delaware uh, Dream Center. They do phenomenal work here in the city. We've partnered with them for a couple of years. They serve some of the most distressed neighborhoods in our city. And so we are collecting food for them over the next week. So here's the deal. As you leave today, just grab one of these bags. Uh, Lindell, our missions director, has put stapled on here, right? You don't have to buy all these things. This is a suggestion of what you can buy, uh, but grab some of those items, fill up the bag, and then bring it back next week. And we're going to drop it off in front of the global map. So as you walk out, the global map is on the wall by sort of the coffee bar area. Just drop it there next week, and we're going to take all of that over to the Delaware Dream Center and just try to serve them well as they serve our community well. All right? Make sense? Grab one on the way out, bring it back next week. All right, before we jump into uh, Exiles this morning, our new series, I want to um, take a few moments here, actually a number of minutes here to talk about something that I think is biblical uh, for me, personal, and probably for many of us, I would imagine emotional. Uh, I want to talk about issue one for a moment that's coming up on November 7th. Here's what I'm going to say. Um, some of us are going to agree with what I'm going to say, and you may want to amen or clap, and during the message time, go for it, right? I love amens, I love clapping, but as I talk about issue one, I'm going to ask that you hold off on that, right? Please don't amen or clap, because this is highly emotional for folks, and I think unintentionally, uh, when we do that, sometimes we hurt the person sitting next to us. Um, some of you will disagree with me this morning and what I'm going to say. Um, I hope, my hope is you won't shut off for the morning. Uh, we live in a 
culture that often just cancels one another when we disagree with each other, and I think that we need to be able to dialogue about these things. So if you disagree with me, I hope you'll reach out. I'd love to sit down with you and, and hear from your perspective and understand why you disagree. Um, I, this is important to me. If you're new here, so if you've been here for a while, you know this about me, but if you're new here, I'm not uh, a very political person. I don't particularly like politics. Um, and frankly, I think sometimes the church, the large C church, sometimes we've lost our way and we've forgotten what our primary mission is. And we've gotten too involved, I think, in politics instead of preaching the gospel. So I want you to know here, uh, we are about the gospel. We have one king, and that's Jesus. And we are citizens of a different kingdom. And we do not preach conservative politics. We don't preach liberal politics. We preach Christ and Christ crucified, right? That's what we focus on. So in 10 plus years of being a pastor, I think I've, I think I've stuck to that. I plan to stick to that, uh, which you may wonder then, so why talk about issue one, right, if it's political? Well, issue one is about reproductive decisions. That's the language that's used, including but not limited to abortion. And I would say that's not political, that's biblical. And that's a biblical issue that's being put right in our face right now. And we have always said, if it's something biblical, we're willing to talk about it. So uh, issue one, for those of you who don't know, just to give you an update, or a, if you don't know what it is, it's a proposed amendment to Ohio's constitution that would supersede any other law that's on the books concerning that. So it doesn't matter what's currently on the books, this is a proposed amendment to the constitution of our state. And it supersedes everything else. And amongst other things, what's on there is it enshrines the right to have an abortion in Ohio. All right, so voting yes, there's been a lot of confusion about this. Voting yes means yes, I want abortion to be legal in our state. Voting no means no, I don't want abortion to be legal in our state. So I would encourage you, it is about far more than that. I would encourage you to go read the bill for yourself. I'm not gonna read all the language of it to you. It's our responsibility, go educate yourself, but there are legal scholars right now sounding the alarm about, hey, the language of this is so broad that it's going to open the door for a number of things, for late-term abortions, that it will open the door for taking away any sort of parental consent. A 15-year-old girl can go have an abortion without ever talking to her parents. That's possible under this legislation, but that's not why I'm talking about it. The reason I'm talking about issue one is I think it puts right in front of every single one of us, well, every single one of us the fundamental question about what does God think about unborn children? What does God feel? What does he say? What, does the, what do the scriptures teach? And politics aside, my job as a pastor is to teach you the scriptures and how they apply to your life. And when we ask this question, what does the Bible say about unborn children? I want to read to you two passages. I could, I could read a lot more, but I'll read two. Jeremiah 1.5. God speaking to the prophet Jeremiah. He says, before I formed you in the womb, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For you, this is the psalmist speaking to God. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Yes, it's mom carrying the baby, but Scriptures say it's God ultimately the one who's forming that child in the womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. We could go on. 
But if this is true, when I read these passages, I don't know how to say it any differently. If God sees us and he loves us when we're being formed in the womb, even before we're in the womb, then I think we, as image bearers of God, have a responsibility to speak up for those who are smallest, for those who cannot speak for themselves. We have a responsibility as image bearers of God, as a society, to protect the smallest image bearers of God. I think we have that responsibility. They have a God-given right to live and a right to a future. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Here's the difficult part. You say, what about, what about moms? What about women? What about especially young moms, oftentimes who are scared or even abandoned? I heard a pastor say one time, he had a young lady in his congregation who was pregnant. She was so desperate, she drank bleach. And you think about a young lady in that situation, and it is scary. But here's what I would say to that. Our, our culture has nearly convinced us that you either have to be pro-baby or pro-women. And I think we have to reject that and say, no, we're both. <laughs> we're both, okay? And you don't, we are, we are pro-baby. We love babies forming in the womb and we believe as a society we should protect them that ending their life, killing them, doesn't solve other problems. And at the same time, we are pro-women, pro-moms, and we should come alongside of those young moms, those moms, and their fathers, and do everything necessary to help them in every way possible, to protect and provide for them. We as the church cannot simply say, save the children, and then do nothing to help those, especially those young moms in difficult situations who may not have what they need to healthfully raise that kid. We need individuals and families in foster care. We need individuals and families in adoption, I'm grateful to say we have families and individuals in this church involved in both of those things, life groups who've supported them. It's why we've partnered ever since our beginning here. We've partnered with the Pregnancy Resource Center in our, in our county. The Pregnancy Resource Center of Delaware County does incredible work. They come alongside of moms, young moms, and the fathers, and they take them by the hand and say, we will walk with you every step of the way. We have financially supported them. We have served there. Even after the baby's born, they continue to walk with the mom saying, what do you need? We will provide resources, we'll provide training, we'll provide education, and we'll be there for you. They do incredible work, and it's why we've supported them every single year, because it cannot be one or the other, right? It has to be both. It has to be, look, mom, we're here for you. Dad, we're here for you. And let the child live. Last thing I'll say. For those who have participated in an abortion, mother or father, I think sometimes the church has been really good about defending life and talking about the biblical nature of this, which is good. What we have been less good at sometimes, the overall church is reminding folks and preaching and proclaiming the healing and the forgiveness at the foot of the cross of Christ for every and any sin. And I just want to say to you today, if you've participated in that decision, you feel the shame or the weight of that or the guilt of that, there is healing and forgiveness at the feet of Jesus. God's grace is enough and it was poured out at the cross through the blood of Christ and it is weighty enough and glorious enough and big enough to heal and forgive any and every sin. And I just want you to know that this morning. I'm so glad at our Lewis Center campus, and I would love to see one started here at the Delaware campus. We've had a life group actually specifically for that for three years now at our Lewis Center campus, a life group specifically around healing and forgiveness in abortion. And I would love to see one started here at the Delaware campus as well. So my job is not to tell you 
to vote or how to vote, but to ask you, I think, to educate yourself, to prayerfully consider and to understand what the scriptures teach. And uh, if you agree with me, go make your voice known at this moment. If you disagree genuinely, I would love to sit down uh, and talk with you. All right? Having said all that, if you've got a Bible, open up to Daniel chapter 1. All right? We are, um, we're kicking off a new series today that we're calling Exiles. We're going to be looking at the first six chapters of Daniel. And honestly, in light of issue one, in light of all that's going on in our world and our culture right now, I can't think of a better series or a better person to look at their life. Because in this series, we're going to be talking about how do you live faithfully for Jesus in a society or culture that increasingly sometimes doesn't agree with some of those same values? How do you live somewhere that, that doesn't feel like home and still be faithful to Jesus? That's exactly the situation that Daniel is in. Daniel and his friends, as we're going to see, around 600 BC, right? They're taken out of their homeland, out of Judah, and they're placed in Babylon. We just talked a lot about Babylon in Revelation. They're placed in Babylon, a culture that doesn't agree with anything that they believe, and they have to live there. Daniel lives there for the rest of his life, for 70 years. How does he live faithfully there? By the way, our creative team did this artwork, and I feel like we're in Lord of the Rings this morning, which just makes me so, like we're in, doing church in Rivendell this morning, which makes me really happy. But we are, we are not going to focus on the latter half of Daniel. So starting in chapter 7, it gets into apocalyptic prophecy, which is very connected to Revelation. And we just spent 10 weeks in Revelation, finished that series last week. So if you're new here, you can go back and listen to that. That's all on our website. We're going to focus on the first six chapters. And again, starting with around 600 BC, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, of the Babylonian Empire, comes in. The northern kingdom's already been destroyed. Israel, the northern kingdom, already destroyed. The southern kingdom has continued in disobedience to the Lord, and they're about to be destroyed. And that, that destruction starts here around 600 BC, where the king comes in, the emperor comes in, and he begins to take some of the cream of the crop, right? The best of the best of, of Judah, and bring them to Babylon to say, hey, we're going to siphon off the best of the best and incorporate them into our society, into our leadership. So that's where we start here in Daniel 1. Verse 1. And before I say that, sorry, the big idea, faith is more about how you live than where you live. We'll say that every single week. Faith is more about how you live than where you live. It's not about your geography, right? It's about really who you trust and then the decisions that you make wherever you live. Sometimes it's easy for us to think, if I lived back then or if I just lived over there, it would be easier to be a Christian. Maybe, but God's placed us here. <laughs> He's placed us where we are, when we are. The question is, what are we going to do, as Gandalf says, with the time that is given to us, right? All right, I'm sorry, last one. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of jo Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. I want you to note or circle the phrase, the Lord gave. That's one of three times that we're going to see that in this chapter. The Lord gave. One of the three times we're going to see God moving here. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. 
Right, the Chaldeans were sort of a subset of Babylonians who were known, it seems, for being astrologers and magicians and uh, they practiced divination and so uh, they were the king's counselors, the wise men of Babylon. And so basically what they're doing is say, hey, find me the best of the best. We're going to bring them here so they can be the king's wise men. Right? It's a brilliant strategy in some ways. Verse 5 says, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Alistair Begg, uh, somewhat well-known pastor in a little, a little tiny book called Brave by Faith. It's a good little book on the first six chapters of Daniel. He mentions three things just happened. Great summary. He says they've been relocated, re-educated, and renamed. They've been relocated, re-educated, and, re and I want you to think about, renamed, think about how difficult that must have been, how uncomfortable that must have been, moved out of everything that's familiar to a place and a culture that doesn't share any of the same values or beliefs that you have. No one respects them. No one knows your beliefs or respects them. Then re-educated. They had to learn all of this Babylonian astrology and literature, sit, sit through astrology 101 and divination 101, and then finally they're renamed. What an insult. And if you didn't catch it, you may not have caught it because of the language there. All of their names in Hebrew, their original names, honor God. All of their names that they're given honor the gods of the Babylonians. So it's literally like, right, you got Christian and Abraham and Moses, right? And they're given these new names that then honor, right, the gods of the place they've been taken to. What an insult. And yet the boys go through all of it. They just endure it. They they're probably teenagers at this point in time. They suffer through all of it. And then comes verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So this is so, here's where he draws the line. And I, if you're reading this casually, you're thinking, food? Really? That's where you draw the line? <laughs> you're cool living in godless Babylon. You're, you're fine sitting through astrology and divination 101. You're okay with having your very name stripped from you. Your identity seemingly sort of challenged, given new names that honor the gods of your enemies. But when it comes to the filet mignon and the expensive wine, you're like, nope, that's where I draw the line. <laughs> you think, what gives? <laughs> Why? Because it's about far more than food. It's actually not about the food at all. The, the problem is twofold. Food, though it was meant to be a blessing to them, did not meet the requirements, the preparation requirements of the Mosaic law and likely included uh, meat that had been from forbidden animals. So, so part of their Jewish faith, the old covenant, God gave them very specific instructions about how they were to prepare their food. It was a way that it set them apart from the cultures around them and these did not meet that. So it's an obedience issue to God. And also, both the wine and the meat were likely offered to idols first. They would have been offered to Babylonian gods in worship, thus making eating them, sort of participating in that act of idolatry, affirming those foreign deities. So the problem isn't diet. The problem's not healthy versus unhealthy. It's about fidelity. It's about faithfulness to God and the unwillingness on Daniel's part and his friend's part to compromise this core conviction and to disobey their God. That's what it's really about, obedience and faithfulness to God. So, so note the logic here, because this is really important for you and me in how we interact with the culture around us. Relocate us? Fine. 
We'll lament that, but we can still serve God in a different place. Because faith isn't about where you live, it's about how you live. Re-educate us? Fine, we'll learn your stuff. We'll sit through the seminar at work. We'll sit through that class at university, right? We'll, we'll suck it up and learn it. And, and listen, that's, I've heard this. This is relevant for us. People in the workplace right now going, do I, do I stay? It's a difficult decision. College students, right? Some of you, some of you may, we, we've got a number of students actually from a local seminary here. And so Christian education, it's a wonderful thing. We also have a lot of students from Ohio Wesleyan and from other universities that private or public are much more secular in their thinking and do not, do not sit and teach the kids the gospel, the students the gospel. That was my experience at Ohio Wesleyan. I sat through classes where the professor was, oftentimes I could tell, I think he or she is kind of hostile toward the faith. What I'm being taught doesn't agree with the things that I've been taught as a young man growing up in my parents' household. And listen, can that be, can that be really hard? Can university learning be damaging in some ways? Yes, but it can also be a crucible in which your faith is tested and refined. I had opportunities to share the gospel in those classes. I had a professor call me up to the board one time, be like, yo, you, you, I, I think somehow it came up, I was a Christian. He's like, will you draw the gospel on the board? And I was like, what, like now? You know? He's like, yes. And I was like, okay. And like, Lord, help me not to screw it up, right? And so you have opportunities to share the gospel. You see that it's a mission field there. And also, having to learn from a different perspective being faced with things, being taught things that were so different than what I had grown up with, it was so good for me to be challenged. It sent me back to my Bible, deeper into my Bible, deeper into my faith to ask the question, do I really believe the things that I say that I believe? And we've had many students, many students right now who are going through that same process, many students who have gone through that process over the years, and they've not only come out just surviving, but even thriving in their faith. This is relevant for us right now. Relocate us, re-educate us, fine, we'll deal with it. Rename us, fine, we don't like that. But it doesn't put us in direct disobedience to God. But when it comes to this, make us do something that puts us in direct disobedience to God. In this case, the diet. No, <laughs> that's a line that we will not cross. And I just want us to sit on that for a moment because that has massive implications for us and how we live in our culture right now. All right, we need, to, we need to sit on this for a moment. So I think the reality is, for many of us, whether in the workplace or in school or just in general in life, some of us feel like we're living in Babylon. Some of us look at the rapid social change of the last decade or two and we kind of are going, what happened? <laughs> I feel like I've been taken from my homeland in a sense and I've been placed somewhere else and I don't, I don't know how to live here faithfully. Now, not everybody feels that way. But some do. I think particularly if you're my age or younger, you may not feel that. You're like, I kind of always feel like it's been this way, right? But for those who are maybe my age or older, I remember having this conversation with my grandparents 10 years ago where they just said, this is so different than the way we grew up. And we said, yes, it is. It is. We feel it play itself out in so many different ways. We feel it in family. We feel it in friendships. We feel it in the workplace. We feel it in school settings. We feel it just watching TV or on social media. Yes, culture is changing, but, but let me say something. Culture changing or not, society changing rapidly or not, if you're going to be a faithful, faithful follower of Jesus, a Bible-believing, faithful follower of Jesus in any culture at any time, it's going to be a difficult road. And there are going to be times where the society and people around you don't embrace those same values and you have to ask the question, what am I going to do? When I'm placed in a context where I'm, it, man, 
everyone around, the leadership, right, the family, they just don't agree, what am I going to do? Some folks have framed it this way. Well, you basically have four options, right? And I think this is a pretty fair uh, description. One, you can retreat, right? As Christians, we can say, hey, looks a little bit too much like Babylon. Let's go build a monastery, right? And we'll sort of cloister up, right? And we'll gather around and we'll just shut the world out. We'll retreat. But I don't think that, I don't think that's what Christ has called us to. If we can bring those up, go ahead and bring up retreat. Two, you can blend in. You say, okay, let's not make waves. Let's not get people too upset, right? We need to be in the culture. But you end up so in the culture that you're of the culture. And you end up not making any difference at all. Nobody knows that you're a Christian. Nobody knows the things that you believe. You're, you're what Jesus says about the salt, right? That the salt has lost its saltiness. It's not useful for anything. It's not changing anything. It's only to be thrown out and trampled on. So I don't think we blend in. Three, we can attack. And all of us probably feel tendencies towards all of these, right? So this one is, is well, let's go win the culture wars, right? We'll fight fire with fire, right? If things are going to change, let's go out and let's, let's win those culture wars and we'll change people that way. But listen, guys, there's limits to the effectiveness of legislation. You don't change people's hearts through the passages of laws. And I just told you, right, about issue one. Like, personally, I hope issue one fails. I, I think it's a bad amendment. But I recognize it passing or failing is not going to change people's hearts. The only thing that does that is the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming us from the inside out. So I don't have a lot of faith in the, hey, let's go attack and fight fire with fire. I think we're called to something different. And it's this, number four, live like an exile. Live like an exile. What is an exile? An exile is someone who's been, they're not, they're not home. <laughs> they live there. They're going to be there for a long time. They're going to plant themselves down and they're going to love the city and they're going to thoughtfully engage it, but they recognize this is not their eternal home. That's the attitude we have to take. We thoughtfully engage our culture. We serve people. We love people. We share Christ with people. We suffer when necessary, as Christ did. We be a good citizen and we be courageous enough to critique the culture when necessary, to be a prophetic voice to stand up for things that are right, to draw a line, to call out injustice when we see racial prejudice or sexism or the devaluing of human life even in its earliest stages or pride or greed or sexual immorality or anything else. In other words, right, we're in the culture but we're not of it. We live in the land, we build relationships, we love people, we preach Christ but we also remember this is not my eternal home. I have one king. My allegiance is to him, to King Jesus, and he and he alone gets my greatest love and the first priority of my life. That's, that's how we live faithfully. That's how Daniel and his friends live faithfully, right? They lived like an exile. And I, I hope all of us can agree at least on that, like philosophically, that you say, okay, live like an exile. I can agree with that. That's how we as a Christian should live. Our primary calling is not to retreat or certainly not to just blend in and not to attack and fight fire with fire, but to live like an exile. Here's where that gets tricky, okay? This is why Christians argue so much with each other. Sometimes how that's applied into our lives is not always incredibly black and white. There are going to be situations where some of us are more comfortable engaging the culture in ways that others of us aren't. I'll just give you a couple examples. Some teachers and parents you're going to see what the school system, your school system is doing and say, no, we're out. We'll take our kids elsewhere. 
We'll homeschool them. Other teachers, parents who say, hey, I don't, I don't feel like I'm being asked to, part- I may not agree with some of these things, but I don't feel like I'm asked to participate in them just by being here. I want to stay. I want to be a missionary. I want to try to reform or be, in, be a light from the inside out. Some students, you'll pray about it and with your family, you'll decide to go to Christian college. That's great. Others will say, no, I want to go to a public university or a private secular university. That's a person-by-person family decision. Some of us are going to say, right, if my employer is pushing that agenda, if my company's pushing that agenda, I don't think I want to be here anymore. (laughs) I may need to look else for work. Others of us will say, no, I want to stay. I want to be that city in a hill in my workplace. And here's, here's my point. We need to be thoughtful. We need to be prayerful. We need to be Bible-saturated in this. It's not just about how do I feel, right? We need to use wisdom. And God says, if you lack wisdom, ask. Lord, how do I do this, right? This is difficult. How do I do this? But we also need to be gracious with one another when we disagree, okay? Don't be, be quick to listen, slow to become angry, and slow to judge your brother or sister who may handle a situation differently than you may not handle it the exact same way as you. Sometimes it's not always black and white how this applies. I think we should all agree on the principle. We're trying to live like an exile and be faithful to Christ. But sometimes we'll apply that into our lives differently. I think about it with Daniel, right? (laughs) I mean, he and his friends are sitting there learning all about Babylonian astrology and divination. You think that wasn't uncomfortable for them, right? CEO says we have to do this, right? We got to sit in this seminar here. That's tough. And yet they endure it. And they're still faithful in the midst of it. They draw lines, faithful and prayerful about it. And they live faithfully as exiles. Let's go to verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor. That's the second time we see God gave. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. Why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. I'm going to translate that for you. He comes to the chief eunuch. He says, hey, I don't want to eat this. Can I just not? And the chief eunuch's like, Daniel, I like you. However, I like my head more, right? I like having my head attached to its neck. If, if you don't eat this stuff and then you, you and your friends appear sickly and weak, the king will literally kill me. And that's not an exaggeration, right? That, Babylon is known for that, right? Like he will kill me. So here's what's interesting though. Daniel doesn't take the first no as, well, clearly that's a sign from God that I just need to cave on this. He keeps going and he goes to the next guy. Verse 11, then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he says, test your servants. So he, got, he goes to the guy who's directly over them and says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance. And here's the translation, fatter in flesh, right? Than all the youths, excuse me, who ate the king's food. I do enjoy this total side point Alistair Begg pointed out. He said, you know, a lot of people go on the Daniel plan to lose weight, but according to the text, they gained weight, right? Um, I don't know if that's exactly what it, what it means. I'd have to look more deeply into the translation there, but I do want to make this point, right? Um, it's the, the whole point of this passage is not about a diet, okay? It's not about vegetables versus meat and wine. The point of the passage is that the primary takeaway is that God took care of them. They stepped forward in faith. They drew a line 
It was dangerous. It was, it was risky in some ways. And yet God honored that obedience and he's moving here. Go back to verse 16. It says, the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them, third time we see it, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I'll come back to that at the end. I want to close this out in the next few minutes with three things, okay? We're going to talk about God's sovereignty. We're going to talk about God's provision and then God's faithfulness, right? God's sovereignty, God's provision, and God's faithfulness. Let's talk about God's sovereignty. I told you there are three times in this story that it says God gave. And it's not just God giving, it's, it's God moving. Three times just in chapter one where we say, we see that God is still governing and God is still moving in the lives of his people. Okay, when I say sovereignty, that means supreme authority or power. Synonym would be lordship, God's lordship. And you say, why is it a story about God's lordship or God's sovereignty? Think about it. The worst has happened. The setting of this story is Babylon just took over the southern kingdom of Judah. They destroyed the temple. And the obvious question that everyone is asking, all the Jewish people at this point are asking, the reader would be asking is, man, where is God in all of this? Is, are the Babylonian gods stronger than the God of Israel? Is God still working? Is God still sovereign over the world? And we get the answer to that at the very beginning of the story in verse two. Go back and read verse two. It says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. What does that tell us? That even the exile getting sent to Babylon doesn't happen outside of God's plan. It's part of God's plan. Think about, the, think about that. The worst thing that the people could have imagined, losing their land and being deported, is actually part of God's plan. For decades and decades and decades, God had, had told them through the prophets, if you continue to turn away, if you continue to ignore the Sabbath, if you continue to practice idolatry, he said, I'm going to exile you. I'm going to send you away. He told them he would. He did it. But even in so doing, he's showing his power. That's exactly what happened all throughout the book. And Daniel and through his friends' lives, we're going to see God showing up over and over and over again. That's the major theme of the book of Daniel, that God is sovereign over all the kings and the kingdoms of the earth, even Babylon. And he's exercising his sovereignty and he's working all things for good. And listen, <clears throat> I say that and I hope we'll take that here and go, yeah, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> I hope we'll take that here and see the supreme relevance for us today. Guys, Right now is a difficult time. You open the news right now, you're seeing wars in two different places, another mass shooting just a few days ago, and it's easy sometimes to say, God, are you still sovereign? And one of the most consistent messages of the Bible is even when we can't see it, God is still working. Yes, God is sovereign over the United States. 
God sees all the rapid social change of the last 5, 10, 15 years, and he is not threatened by it. He's not threatened by modern or postmodern societal developments. He is not up in heaven wringing his hands, wondering what he should do. And neither should we as believers be wringing our hands, being afraid of the future. I hear people say that a lot, right? It's a scary world out there. And listen, I agree. It's a broken world out there. But I think it's so important for us to know this, to, to take a deep spiritual breath and find rest and comfort and courage in the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over America and over China, over Russia and Ukraine, Palestine and Israel. He's sovereign over every nation, every kingdom, every democracy, every dictatorship, every terrorist group in the world. And I know it doesn't always seem that way, but again, that's one of the most consistent messages of the scriptures. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it, God is exercising his sovereign rule and he's working out his good purposes in the world around us. And I know that doesn't solve every hurt and that doesn't make it easy and it doesn't take away every pain, but I do think that knowledge, God's sovereignty, helps guard us from despair and it gives us hope for the future, right? Secondly, God's provision. The other two times it says God gave, God literally gave something. He gave Daniel favor when he needed favor in the eyes of those who were above him. And God gave he and his friends wisdom and understanding when they needed it before the king. So I want to ask you a simple question and just ask you to take a moment to consider this and ask yourself, do you trust that God will give you what you need when you need it? Do you trust that God will give you what you need when you need it. Now, I'm going to anticipate some of the questions back to that. You like, like financially? Yes. Relationally? Yes. Mentally? Yes. Emotionally? Yes. Vocationally? Yes. And listen, key distinction, not always what you want when you want it, but what you need when you need it. I've told you this story before. Uh, Corey Tenboom, author of the book The Hiding Place, uh, she was part of the Dutch resistance against the Nazis during World War II. She and her family helped uh, Jews hide from the Nazis. And her father, when she was a little girl, her father was a uh, clock maker, watchmaker. He used to take her on the train with her for his work. And, uh, and she started wrestling with, how do I trust the Lord? You know, Daddy, how do I trust God? And he said to her, he said, Corey, when is it that I give you your train ticket? The thing you need to get on the train? She said, well, right before we get on the train. He said, exactly. That's the way our Heavenly Father works. He will give you exactly what you need and he will give it to you when you need it. And you can trust him. That's the kind of trust that our Heavenly Father wants from us. Not that we fear and we fret, but that we trust him and say, Lord, I trust you're going to give me exactly what I need when, you, when I need it. That's how, Daniel, that's how Daniel and his friends live faithfully in Babylon. God, we trust that you're going to provide, right? Faith is about how you live, not where you live. It's also about who you trust and where you place that trust. So let me ask again, where are you placing that trust? Is it in money? Your spouse? Your kids? Your career? Achievement? Yourself? Place your faith in God. Trust God's provision for your life. Seek first his kingdom and believe and trust Jesus when he says, I'll give you everything you need. Finally, God's faithfulness. Last one here. 
God's faithfulness. So Morgan and I attend a fair number of weddings throughout the year. Um, I'm often officiating those weddings, and there's usually, uh, once you hit the reception, there's usually a dance that happens. You guys know this dance where they invite all the couples who are married to come out and dance on the floor, and then they start announcing, right? If you've been married one year or less, come off the dance floor, right? And, you know, the bride and groom walk off, you know, and, and all the young, young couples. And then if you've been married five years or more, come off the dance floor, right? Morgan and I are, are almost to nine, so every time it hits 10 years or more, we're like, dang it, right? And uh, we think, like, don't you get, like, a year credit for each kid, right, or something like? That would help us stay out on the dance floor a lot longer, but um, there's one of our goals, right, in our marriage is to win that sucker someday. Because there's always one, maybe two couples at the end. They just keep going, and it's 30 years, 35 years, 40 years, 45 years, 50 years, and there's usually this one couple left at the end, white-haired, still holding hands, still dancing after 55 or 60 years. And honestly, it's really beautiful just to watch because you look at these, this couple and you think they've been faithful to one another, faithful to the promises they made in every season, through all the ups and downs, through all the joys and griefs, they've been faithful. And yet the beauty of that moment, the beauty of that couple is just a shadow just a glimpse of the faithfulness of God and his faithfulness to our pro his promises he's made to us, to his people. We sing a song here, the lyrics are, he's faithful in every season and he's faithful through generations. And that's what I want to draw our attention to as we close. So, so that, that last verse in Daniel 1 where it says, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's a reference to nearly 70 years later. Daniel lives his entire life in Babylon. But 70 years later, Cyrus of Persia, the, emperor, the king of Persia, the emperor of Persia, comes in and takes over the Babylonian empire. And under Cyrus, the prophecy that was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah 70 years before comes to fulfillment. He said that the people will come back. God will send us back. And Cyrus of Persia author, authorized the Jewish people to go back to their homeland. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, they began to go back and they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt the wall. And you see a promise made decades before by God. He was faithful. But here's the beautiful thing. God's faithfulness extends beyond just that promise to bring the people back. Far beyond just a few years or even four decades. It goes all the way back. God's faithfulness goes all the way back. His promises go all the way back to the very beginning of time, to the beginning of the Bible. Right after the fall of mankind, God promised Adam and Eve, one day there will be coming someone. One day I'm going to send someone, the offspring of the woman, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And all throughout the ages, all throughout the pages of scripture and the pages of history, that promise is expanded upon. The prophets spoke about it. They told about this one who would come and deliver the people of God from their ultimate Babylon, from their sin. They talked about this one that would come and rescue his people spiritually and eternally. Daniel himself talked about him. Daniel in the later chapters calls this person, I saw the son of man. And he comes to God, the ancient of days, and the ancient of days handed to the son of man an everlasting kingdom. And then one day, 600 years later, that promised one came, another exile who left his homeland. The difference is Jesus wasn't forced. He left willingly. Jesus willingly left his home, heaven, stepped into temporary exile, if I can say it that way, for you and for me.
Jesus lived perfectly in Babylon, in perfect faithfulness. And then another key difference, instead of being shown honor before the authorities, instead of being given favor like Daniel, Jesus was handed over to the authorities, spit on, mocked, whipped, and hung on a cross for you and for me. But on the third day, God raised him from the grave, publicly vindicating him. And Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father and he offers forgiveness of sin and new life to anyone who will turn from their sin and trust him with, their, with his life or with her life. And so if you're here today and you love Jesus, you love that one who came from heaven for you and you see the faithfulness of God, not just in every season, but through generations. <laughs> I hope that you will celebrate the faithfulness of God today in your life. And I hope that you will trust him all the more. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you don't love Jesus, I would invite you to turn. If there's one thing you can learn from Daniel's life, it's trust the God that he trusted. <laughs> turn from your sin, trust him with your life and begin having a relationship with God today through his son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, again, I can't think of a better series for us to be going through right now. Lord, we live at a time and in a place that is changing rapidly. And Lord, for many of us, um, there are many issues, right? Not just issue one, not just the workplace, but in family and friendships and as we watch television and consume entertainment, God, our, our values and our beliefs and our faithfulness to you are challenged in many, many, many ways. And it is legitimately difficult sometimes to understand how do we follow faithfully in the place and in the time in which you've, you've given us. So Father, right now we ask for wisdom. You say if you lack wisdom, then ask. And I wanna give you a moment to pray. If that's where you are today, maybe it's, maybe it's in your workplace, maybe it's at school, maybe it's a friendship, maybe it's in your family. You're just wrestling through, Lord, what lines do I draw? How do I be obedient to you here? Put Jesus first and ask for wisdom from the Lord. Take some time now and ask him for wisdom. Father, we ask not only for wisdom, but we ask for the courage of conviction. There are times where we don't know what to do and we need wisdom, and then there are times that we know exactly what to do and we're scared. Help us. We sang it earlier, Lord, you fight our battles. Come fight for us and help us. As we continue to pray, I wanna give you a moment just to spend with the Lord. If you're here today and you're ready to take that step today, you've all your life perhaps, resisted 
The Lord held him at arm's length, but today you're saying, I don't want that anymore. I want to follow him. I want to trust Jesus with my life. I want to give you an opportunity to pray right now. You don't have to leave this place the same way you came in. That relationship can start today. So if you want to pray with me, you can pray with me or you can pray it in your own words. It's not magic words, it's just the intention of your heart to say, Lord, today I recognize that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And Jesus, I believe you left heaven for me and you came to earth for me and you died on the cross for my sin and you were raised from the grave that I might have new life. So today, I turn from my sin and Jesus, I trust you. You and you alone have the words of life. And Jesus, today, will you make me new? God, I thank you that when anyone prays that in faith, you answer, Lord, and your grace is extended. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we do ask for wisdom We ask for courage. We ask that you would help us to be the church that you've called us to be, to serve our community, to love our community, to be a prophetic voice in our community, to share Christ and to follow him, even when it's hard. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.